Julie is a sports medicine doctor. How often do you hear the word meniscus on a given day? Oh, geez. Uh, Many, many times every single day. Many times. I feel personally I talk more about the meniscus and meniscus tears than like any other part of the body. I'm going to read some phrases and tell me if these sound familiar to you. My (laughs) knee hurts. I think it's my meniscus. My friend told me I probably tore my meniscus. I saw a chiropractor slash physical therapist slash another physician slash the internet and had an MRI and I was told I have a meniscus tear and I definitely should have surgery. Have you heard any of those before? I've heard all of those. Usually it's also my meniscus hurts. (laughs) 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 And it's like, point, point to it, point to your meniscus. It's like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. That's, that's good. Um, Listen, the meniscus tears are very, very common. In fact, they're the most common indication for knee surgery in the United States. And they're incredibly popular in, you know, media. We hear about them with sports and professional athletes all the time. But I think the average person really has no idea what a meniscus is. And for that matter, what a meniscus tear is. And I think we spend a lot of time basically educating people about this. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this was a perfect episode, one that I'm really shocked it took to like, get to this many episodes in before we did it, to be honest, but I'm super excited to, to hash this one out. Um, we're going to bring on one of our, our absolute favorite people. He's one of our mentors. He's one of our partners and a world expert in orthopedic surgery to basically demystify the meniscus. Does that sound good, Julie? I am so pumped. I can't wait. Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. All right, let's get right into figuring out what is up with the meniscus with our esteemed guests, Dr. Charles Bush Joseph, aka CBJ, aka. Chuck. So Dr. Bush Joseph um, is a regarded sports medicine and arthroscopic surgical specialist, but my favorite part of his bio on the website says most of his patients know him by his warm, compassionate bedside manner. And I think we would all agree. Julie and I uh, learned a ton from Chuck on how to interact with patients, which is going to make for a great episode. He's a graduate of the University of Michigan Medical School. He's currently a professor at uh, Rush University Medical Center with us. He serves on an editorial board of several national orthopedic journals, including the prestigious American Journal of Sports Medicine. He is also involved in leadership roles in several national orthopedic societies and was a past president of the American Orthopedic Society for Sports Medicine. Chuck has also been very involved with uh, professional sports. He's the uh, former head team physician and remains a team physician for the Chicago White Sox, as well as an associate team physician for the Chicago Bulls. Uh, Through these roles, he was elected to the Major League Baseball Medical Advisory Board and was actually the president of Major League Baseball Team Physician Association in 2012. So at this point, I think we've pretty well established that Chuck knows what the hell he's doing, and he's been around a few few menisci in his day. So with that, Chuck, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. I, I think all those lines that you said just sort of prove one thing. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, See, everybody. Now everybody got a little slice in the five seconds that Chuck has spoken about how charming Chuck Bush Joseph is. Never too old to podcast, Chuck. <laughs> um, I, I want to start with a very, very uh, uh, high level um, question here and just start off with what is a, the meniscus? You know, I've always used the analogy that knees are a lot like cars. It's like the front end of your car. And, uh, you know, the uh, surface of the bone or the articular cartilage is like the tread in the tire. And the meniscus is your shock absorber. And so we always say that if your shock absorber is not working well, the ride on that car actually gets a lot rougher. And occasionally that shock absorber can break off and then it causes real problems. So I, I think that's the basic function. It really helps absorb shock in the knee and the more load you put on your knee with running or high impact sports, uh, the more important those shock absorbers are. Uh, You actually have two of them. You have what we call an inside one or the medial meniscus and an outside one on the outside part of your knee called the lateral meniscus. So uh, they're both pretty critical um, and uh, they're obviously very important. And when you lose them, problems can happen. I I wanted to bring up because as Jeremy mentioned in the, in the cold open talking about people coming in, worrying about their meniscus and having a concern about a tear of their meniscus and and hearing about athletes having problems with their meniscus. 
Chuck, what are the common injuries to the meniscus that you see and how do they occur? And we'll get into how we treat how we treat them. Well, you know, I think, Julia, you kind of have to divide it up into two different types of patients. And so, sure. you know, when we talk about our real young, active patients, say under the age of 30, under the age of 35, most of the time it takes something traumatic. I mean, it, it's something I've got to fall or injure myself or trip or, you know, or uh, my knee sort of gets locked up uh, coming out of a squat or playing basketball or a soccer game. Whereas if you look at patients over the age of 35 and certainly over the age of 45 or 50, uh, sometimes the meniscus, as we get older, gets a little bit more brittle, so it doesn't take as much to injure it. And so, you know, patients will say, you know, listen, I didn't, I'm just getting out of a squat or I was walking downstairs or getting out of my car and, and, and I felt pain. So uh, we kind of break it up to acute or chronic, which means acute means, yeah, something happened. I know exactly when it happened. And chronic means, you know, listen, my knee got sore. I, I went for a walk, run or a jog. And later that evening, my knee got a little achy, and the next morning it was really sore and swollen. Those are usually two different age groups. The, the acute event, as I say, that younger patient that generally knows when it happens. And then the older patient is usually something that, yeah, I notice it later that evening or next morning, and now I'm sore and sort of limping around. So um, we always kind of break it down to those facts. A trauma or gradual, and then young and old. And uh, a lot of those things can really everybody into one of those four buckets. And that can kind of give you an idea about where you might want to go or what concern level you may have about that. Yeah. You, you mentioned something interesting there that I think we get asked a lot is as we get older, is it normal for the meniscus to, to have abnormalities with it for it to tear or to, to, to not look the same as when we were younger? Well, I, uh, that's actually true, Jeremy, and, and I don't want to be very wonky, but you know, if you sort of look at a large medical study and you take a hundred people over the age of 45, say you take 100 people, age 50, uh, and you take a, you do an MRI of every knee. And even though none of those patients have any concerns or complaints, probably 45 to 50% of those patients will have a meniscal tear by MRI. Yeah, wow. And it may not be what we call a clinical tear, but it's an abnormality by MRI. And so, uh, you know, it, again, it's an age-related phenomenon. If you take an MRI of 100 people under the age of 20, Virtually none of them should have a tear by MRI unless they've had a traumatic event and have symptoms or clinical findings. So, uh, you know, that's one of the things we sort of have to break up um, is, and this is maybe something we'll get to a little bit later, the MRI, you know, mm. it's that magic, uh, the magic tool, or, uh, you know, and unfortunately, like any tool, a tool only works when you use the right tool for the right job. If you're trying to unscrew a screw, with pliers, it generally doesn't work very well. Yeah. Uh, so again, um, the right tool at the right time, as long as you can fit it into which one of those groups it works best in. Chuck, that's awesome. I love that tool analogy. And I also love hearkening back to when we've had other discussions with other physicians or folks on the podcast about MRIs. And Jeremy, I thought you had a really great analogy is that an MRI is like a home inspection. And so it's, you know, the inspector's job and the radiologist's job is to read every creak and crack and little thing, but that doesn't mean the foundation is bad. It doesn't mean the house is bad. It doesn't mean you should tear out the kitchen. It's just because, you know, the sink is old. <laughs> so I think that's great. And that's the way that I explain it to patients a lot is that this is a piece of, in, this is a piece of information that's very sensitive and not always very specific. And it's our job to correlate those findings clinically. Um, so I, I like that. I like that analogy that you've used, Chuck. Well, thanks, Julie. I, I would agree with that point. And, and that's one of the things that we get nervous about when patients, you know, they, they somehow get an MRI through their chiropractor, maybe even their primary care physician, and they don't really have the, the kit. They don't have the context to interpret the findings. Mm -hmm. and, and it can be very, unfortunately, patients can get very anxious. They read sure. seven or eight diagnoses on that line. They go, oh, my God, somebody's going to cut my leg off. It's that bad. And that's where, that's the role of a, you know, of physician sometimes to help you interpret that. Now there's lots of lay information out there and there's lots of internet sources, but that's where you kind of have to, you know, look at your sources and, and, and take analysis. There's, you know, a, a sources that are based from a medical associations like the American Orthopedic Association for Sports mm -hmm. Medicine or the American Academy of Surgery or the American College of Sports Medicine. Those sources really give you pretty unbiased information. Mm -hmm. Now, some patients may be frustrated because, well, it's too general. 
uh, but it, it generally doesn't steer you in the wrong direction, where sometimes some of the websites can really take you down a rabbit hole and really get you nervous uh, and really get you upset for a while. So, yeah. yeah, a lot of that searching, I think, leads back to the first episode of this podcast that was about stem cells. Uh, people end up, <laughs> that's where they end up in the rabbit hole these days. Um, I, I want you to go back to acute and chronic for a second and maybe talk about, because um, I assume that this is how we're going to split this up, maybe talk about the symptoms or, or what somebody would notice if they maybe had these, you know, meniscus tears. Number one is uh, obviously they have pain and they usually have pain either on the inner side or the outside of the knee. They usually don't have pain right in the front. And so, you know, most of the time when patients kneel down or squat and their kneecap is very sore, uh, I would venture to say that nine times out of 10, that's not a meniscus tear. That's usually some other issues, whether I've got tendonitis of my kneecap or inflammation or a little wear and tear in the kneecap. So most patients, they say, my knee hurts when, oh, when I put my knees together, my knees are touching each other. Or mm. if my foot gets stuck in the sheets and I'm trying to move my foot, and it gets tied up and I get this real zinger, um, that's a common one. You know, the, the real, the best way of measuring for a patient to say, do I have a significant meniscus tear is really the simple ability, can you squat? You know, if you can go into a, a, a relatively deep squat, um, more likely than not, you may have a meniscus tear, but it's probably a real small one, or you may have a lot of other things that is not clinically significant. But if you're unable to bear weight on your knee with the knee bent more than 90 degrees, then I'd be a little bit more nervous that you have what we would call a structural or mechanical problem as opposed to, oh, an inflammation problem or an arthritis problem or a overuse injury type problem. So I think that simple, uh, simple single test of squatting and ability to bear weight more than 90 degrees. Now, the second thing, and you know, God gave you two knees, just like he gave you two hands. You put your knees out in front of you and you lock them out straight and you look at them. And if they're pretty symmetric, I doubt you have a meniscus tear. Um, because if one is visibly swollen mm -hmm. more than the other one, then that's another cardinal finding. So uh, loss of range of motion, specifically the ability to squat, or number two, visual asymmetry, we're gonna say, my knee used to look like my other knee and now it looks swollen and I don't have those same curves uh, that tells us that there's fluid on the knee. And for us, fluid on the knee is pretty indicative of what we would call a mechanical problem as opposed to just a soreness or an inflammation. Yeah, I like to break it down for patients too because I feel like we we see not too dissimilar patient populations, Jeremy and, and me and you and Chuck. Um, I love, and, and I think we've even mentioned this on a prior episode, of the way that uh, you've wrapped things up. So both me and Jeremy trained under Chuck when we were in our fellowship. And we and and Jeremy, you spent every Tuesday with Chuck, right? Just like I did? Yeah. So if anybody has an issue with this podcast, you can send any complaints to Chuck. <laughs> yeah. Tuesdays with Chuck were the best. They were very high yield. And I remember the way that Chuck would um, reassure people, because there'd be a lot of people coming in because they were just worried, because they tweaked something and it felt weird and they're they're my age, they're 38 years old and they're used to being able to bouncing back from things and now they're not and it's scary and this 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 is like the beginning of the end. And Chuck would would examine them and talk to them and look at their x-rays and go, Jules, you got a stable dry knee, okay? That's real reassuring. I just want you to know I don't think it's I don't think it's a mechanical problem. And and I just love that you've got a stable dry knee. <laughs> and that made me so happy and I saw so many people walk out of there, not limp out of there, but walk out of there feeling a lot more reassured because Chuck uh, talked him off the ledge. And I do think that's a lot of what we end up doing is telling people, this is probably that something that's going to get better on its own. And you don't have some disastrous problem going on. You know, Julie, I think that when patients come and see a physician, they want three things. Number one, they want us to make an accurate diagnosis. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and sort of if you're well-trained, like, you know, Jeremy and Julie, uh, yeah. What, what does it require? It requires, yeah, history. We got to sit out and listen. Um, and, and people like Jeremy and Julie are wonderful. They, they sit down and listen to patients. Um, and uh, whereas, you know, many doctors just say, you know, the average time of an orthopedic surgeon allowing a patient to talk is somewhere between 12 to 15 seconds before they interrupt them. Uh, so if you sort of, if you're with a doctor and you get 30 seconds of talk time before they jump on you, you're doing well. Uh, so the, the second thing is you want the physician to give you a, you know, a really accurate uh, physical exam. 
And there's nothing more disappointing to me that when a patient comes and sees me and they want a second opinion because they've seen two or three other doctors and they never, the physician said, well, they never asked me to roll up my slacks or they, they never examined my normal knee. Um, and those are just really simple, basic things. Mm-hmm. And so we have to take a good history, you know, hear the story. Number two, do a good physical exam, which is really not that complicated. Mm-hmm. And then number three, um, our job is to, you know, sometimes a lot of times we'll take an x-ray. But our real job is to educate the patient to the problem. And so if you're seeing a physician and you don't understand what they're telling you, you don't, you got to stop them and you got to say, doctor, I just don't understand. Or you need to explain this to me a little bit better. And um, that's an important thing that, and I think all young physicians and you guys are great because I've sent many of my friends and family to you guys. (laughs) And I never have a doubt about your ability to, to relate and explain your, your quality diagnosticians, but you're also good people that can talk to people. So, um, uh, I, and, and so when you come in with a sore knee, uh, you know, it's not that complicated. I wish I could say that, you know, it's not brain science or, or, or lymphoma <laughs> or some horrible disease. It's really one of four or five things. And, and our job is to kind of help compartmentalize those four or five things so the patient can understand. And so the last thing I'll get to is our job is to after we make a diagnosis is to give you, yeah, these are the three or four or five things that we can do about it yeah. and tell you the pros and cons of each of those four or five things and really help patients make decisions. Uh, because like I said, nobody's got cancer here. So our job is to sort of, you know, do what patients want us to do or what they think fits their lifestyle um, or their demands at the time. So I know it's a soapbox lecture. I'm sorry. I don't think we're paying Chuck enough for this episode, by the way. <laughs> But it really gets to the, you know, before we get back to the meniscus, just hitting on, it really gets to the backbone of maybe even why this podcast exists, Chuck, is, is the concept that, that people don't feel that they can get accurate, easy to understand, empathetic information from a physician in an office visit. And there's a lot of reasons for that. It's not just the physician in that situation. The system creates a lot of problems there, but people feel more comfortable with social media or with Googling at this point. Um, I want to transition back to the, to the meniscus. Um, We've, we've talked about the symptoms that people have, and you, you brought up a really big delineation there between basically having, you know, pain and, and dysfunction, and then having what you called a mechanical or, or, or kind of a structural problem. And so I think that really maybe transitions to like, how are we going to treat these things? Right. So you've created two different categories there. Maybe talk us through kind of how you're going to take that person that you've just done your history and physical exam and diagnose them and what you're going to do about it. Well, let's go to the younger patient who's got an acute injury. Um, You know, so you said, uh, Jeremy, my knee was normal yesterday and I was functioning at a high level until yesterday. And and now something happened and I've got um, I've got pain. I can't bend my knee. I can't squat. I've got visible swelling. In a young, healthy patient, if they've got normal x-rays, unfortunately, those set of circumstances usually going to mean that they've got a more structural mechanical issue. And those patients uh, generally will need you know, more aggressive intervention. So mm-hmm. if you've actually got a patient who um, is got significant swelling and loss of range of motion with normal x-rays, I think you and Julie would probably say, maybe we need to get an MRI a little quicker on this. Mm-hmm. And then we have to decide, is this, is this a structural injury that has the ability to heal and we could just leave it alone and protect it or observe it or treat it with some rehab? Or is it something that needs structural treatment, which is, I hate to say, surgery. Mm-hmm. And so there's a million people a year get their knee scoped. It's a pretty common surgery. Now, if you look at patients over the age of 30, uh, then or 35 for sure, that's where things change. And so if a patient says, you know, my knee hurts, it's a little swollen, um, we break down in those older patients. We, I know it's going to get wonky again. I apologize. We call it an obstructive meniscus tear or a non-obstructive meniscus tear. So I can tear my meniscus. It hurts. I'm sore. I'm swollen. But nothing's really getting stuck. And that one, we just, yeah, let's give it some time. We'll try some medication, try some rehab, try a brace. Sometimes an injection will help. We don't really get very aggressive with those patients as long as they meet our certain parameters. And we would never consider either an MRI or surgery in those patients unless it's been at least six, eight weeks. And probably of patients over the age of 40, probably 50 or 60% of those patients never require surgery. You know, we got to nurse them through that time. Oh, it's just like 
I sprained my thigh muscle or I sprained my calf muscle. Yeah, it'll heal. Just take some time. These are the things you do to help it heal. But if patients, you know, have certain parameters that it skilled clinicians like you can identify, say, you know, this is something we probably shouldn't wait on and we'll get a little bit more aggressive. So, and that's sometimes hard for a patient to make that decision independently. And sometimes you need that help. And that's why using those parameters we talked about, the ability to fully straighten the knee or squat, oh, there's no rush to this at all. Um, uh, if I can't bear weight on my knee and, and say, you know, I sprained my knee and I limp home and, you know, I put some ice on it and the next day I feel okay. It's just a little swollen. Yeah, give it a few more days. There's nothing about a meniscus that's generally we wouldn't call emergent where something's, we say emergent means something better be done within 24, 48 hours. And usually most of the time we say it's not urgent, which is like, well, anywhere from three to seven days. Uh, so in that sense, you know, if you can't get in to see a doctor or you're nervous, uh, you don't, don't be that nervous over the first 24 hours. If you're able to limp around and put weight on it, you're not doing that much harm. The rule of thumb is if you have a fracture of a leg and I twisted my knee and something's broken, generally you can't put more than one or two steps of weight on it. Mm -hmm. And so when we certainly use that analogy in the ankle all the time. And in Canada, you know, more socialized medicine countries, it's called the Ottawa rules. So if you sort of sprain your ankle playing basketball and you sort of walk into the ER and limping around, but you're able to put full weight on it. Yeah. You're limping. They won't even order an x-ray because they know that odds are that 99% you don't have a fracture. So there's no sense in spending that money. So you could take a lot of these same same sort of parameters and apply them to a knee injury. Uh, and generally the older the patient, the slower we are at being aggressive, the younger the patient or the more dramatic the findings are, the more aggressive we are. Now yeah. I will stop one last thing that I do want to say that many times in young patients, a meniscus injury that's traumatic. I heard it playing basketball or heard playing soccer sometimes doesn't occur in isolation. Mm -hmm. And so those patients, if they can many times will tear a ligament and a meniscus at the same time, and that's a little bit more significant. So one trick that we use to patients and help understand how fast does that knee swell? You know, if the knee swells immediately and you can't put weight on it, uh, you do have fear you've got a fracture and you probably should get an x-ray. All right. I can put weight on it, but it swells up within an hour. Uh, I probably have some ligament damage. It maybe have some meniscus damage as well but that's something I should probably evaluate in the next couple of days where, okay. you know, I hurt my knee. It's not that swollen. And the next morning I woke up and it's a little swollen. Yeah. You probably have a small meniscus there, but again, no rush. You're not doing any harm by waiting. You're safe to take some Advil, put some ice, give it a couple of days, see how it goes. Yeah. That's great. It seems like all the meniscus tears like on TV or when people are talking to their friends, get surgery. You know, probably because they're being publicized because they're athletes or somebody. But it's always like, yeah, I had a friend had a meniscus tear and they had to have surgery. Why? Why? Why is that? Why do you think that happens? Well, I, I, I think it's, you know, what we call a selection bias. Yeah. So everybody who says I hurt my knee and it ended up with an operation. Oh, that's 100 percent. But, you know, there's a lot of people that, oh, I sprained my knee and it took a couple of days or a couple of week or two. And now I'm better. They never really had that accurate diagnosis. Oh, yeah, you had a meniscus tear, but. It's one that's peripheral or non-obstructive. It's going to heal itself. doesn't require treatment. And so patients, you know, they don't get to that deep level of diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So, um, again, you know, every, when, when we say the N is what? Oh, yeah, I hurt my knee and I had surgery. Oh, yeah, that means every time I hurt my knee, I have surgery. And that's, right. gen that's generally not the case. But so a lot of what we do as clinicians um, is number one, diagnose, but really number two, as I was alluding to earlier, educate. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, you may have a meniscus here, not a big deal, no rush. And when you get to be my age and you're in your you know, late 50s, early 60s or mid 60s, I, I'm not sure what I'm going to cop to, but <laughs> all my buddies, I, I can't tell you how many of my golfing buddies who think they have a meniscus tear, they get some Advil or they get a cortisone shot and they've never had surgery. And of course they tell me about it and they said, oh, I had magic hands. I go, I didn't do anything. I just <laughs> sort of patted you on the back and, and help you think about just waiting it out to see how things go. So, um, again, it's, it's the crowd you keep. 
sometimes. And when patients love to brag about undergoing medical treatment and um, they, they, they take it as affirmation to their toughness sometimes. And sometimes I, I'll be honest with them and, and I'll, I'll get on my soapbox again, if you don't mind, you know, you go to Canada, you, you know, Canada, Europe, you know, they spend about 10 to 12% of GDP on medical care. In the United States, we spend 20% of GDP. It's almost 19%. We're almost going to cross 20%, 23 or early 24. So we're double spending what every other country in the world does. And same thing, our incidence of knee surgery is twice what it is in most European countries because we have a tendency to over-treat. And, uh, and physician, patients want more treatment. They think it's better. Uh, physicians want to treat more because they're unfortunately incentivized uh, to treat more because they make more money or the hospital makes more money. Um, but it's not, unfortunately, it's not the right thing to do. And uh, so we patients have to rely on quality providers to make good decisions. And so the best thing that really helps that is for every patient to have a bit of consumerism. Mm -hmm. So you walk in and say, listen, doctor, I sprained my knee. I've been limping for a week or two. It's kind of sore. And the doctor says, well, let's get an MRI. And, and you should say, well, do I need it? Is it going to change my treatment or should we just wait it out for a couple of days? I just want to make sure it's nothing serious. Never, a patient should never have the fear of questioning the need for treatment. Mm -hmm. If they have a fear for questioning the need for treatment, it means the physician didn't properly educate them for the necessity of the treatment. It's and so, so uh, and, you know, and you say, do you want that thousand dollar MRI? So the line that I often use is you never order a test unless you're going to make a decision based on that test. Mm -hmm. So if a patient has a normal x-ray and they got a sore knee, but what we call, I believe it's non-obstructive meniscus tear, let's, you know, there's no need to spend that thousand dollars unless you've proven to yourself and proven to me that this is not getting better. Let's spend that thousand dollars MRI and go do a $10,000 surgery. Whereas if you say, no, I, your x-rays are okay. There's nothing serious. Let's ride it out. I think you've saved probably a thousand dollars off your deductible. Uh, and maybe you didn't, you're one of those 50 or 60% of patients that needed no treat other than time. So yeah. that's pure gold, Chuck. It really is. It reminds me of the counterpoint is we just had a lecture not too long ago where one of our physiatrists who I adore, Dr. Eheb Yassin was talking about how we kind of live in Amazon prime world where everybody thinks things should be arrive and be there when you when you want it in two days. <laughs> and I think that it's hard sometimes to talk to a patient and say, this is probably going to get better in four to six weeks. So let's wait it out. And I think it does take a lot of that extra step of just educating and, you know, pulling up a, an illustration or having a model or showing them in the office or looking, looking through their x-rays with them and say, this is what makes me worried. This is what doesn't make me worried. And you know, doing your job as the educator to help them to feel comfortable buying in. And I think you're right, Chuck. If, if, if someone goes and sees a provider and their first thing is to order really expensive testing, I mean, I'd hope I would empower our listeners to say, well, maybe, maybe if I don't even feel comfortable in that moment of saying like, all right, dummy, I'm not going to do that. Then you can politely take that order and you can leave the office with it and not do it if you don't want to, you know? Yeah. And I also think that it's very empowering for patients at the end of an appointment too, as the physician to um, give them some sort of like, if it's not better, we will do more things. I will follow up. I will make yeah. sure that you're getting yeah. better because I find, I find that one of the most common things I hear from patients who are getting second opinions is, you know, they told me to get better and they, they just like brushed me off. Yeah. And I just, you know, again, like, I think the vast majority of doctors are not jerks. Like, I don't think they're actually brushing off. I do think they thought it was going to get better, but there was no like, listen, come back in four to six weeks. If it's not better, like, we'll get that MRI. We'll make sure you're getting better. I promise. We'll make sure that it's going to, you know, and, and you're not damaging it in the meantime. So I just, I, I think that, that, that sealing that appointment with, with that reassurance is really, 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 really helpful. It reminds so. me of Bernie Bach, Dr. Bach, who uh, I adore and I miss terribly. Uh, he always ended every appointment with, he was one of our other mentors that taught me and Jeremy as well, an orthopedic surgeon who's wonderful. And he also just retired. He's not dead. The way no, he's not gone. No, he's <laughs> not six feet under yet. But he would always leave the appointment encounter saying, I will take care of you. Or he would say, we will take care of you because I would be with him, you know, and we will take care of you. And yeah. if you, and that's, that's something I will t hold on to forever. That I, that's a promise that we make to our patients that we will take care of you. I will be available. You can call me. 
you know, and I think that's, that's invaluable. You know, the, the other parameter that I think every physician and, and, and I, I say for every consumer, you know, that when you have a medical encounter, the, you know, the last words out of a physician, out of a physician or a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant or any providers say, did I answer your questions? Yeah. And, and if, and if you walk out of, a, of an encounter without your questions answered, you know, unfortunately that just, it leads to a, a more difficult interaction and, and the, you lose confidence. And so mm-hmm. it's, you know, so that's patients have to be forthright in that and say, I you know, I have another question. Can you answer that? Cause the physician wants to know, I mean, um, you know, as physicians, I think we all say that it's just kind of, we don't want bounce backs where, you know, there's nothing yeah. worse from a physician encounter that you see and examine and talk to a patient and educate them or recommend treatment. And then you get a call back an hour later with more questions. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's hard and frustrating for, for both sides on that. Yeah. It reminds me of, and this will be the last name drop of someone that's trained me, I think will be, yeah, Tony Romeo. When I worked with him every, every Wednesday during fellowship, um, a really wonderful shoulder surgeon and a good friend would always, I like the way he framed it. He would say, what other questions do you have for me? Because sometimes when you ask somebody a question of like, uh, that's good, right? You know, you're leading them into say yes, so you can leave the room. But Tony would always be like, what other questions can you answer for, or can I answer for you? And the patients are always like, ah, I think I'm good. And then I know I'm done. (laughs) Julie, you're, you're orthopedic name dropping like nobody's business. I know. Um, Chuck's here. It takes a village, Julie. It does. It sure does. Chuck, one of the most common questions I get when I, when we talk about the tears that you mentioned that don't need surgery is, but it's a tear. So is it going to heal or like, but it's not going to heal if we don't do something to it. So how do you address that? Well, um, you you break that down again, a couple different ways, you know, like anything else in the body, we say that, you know, tissue that has a really good blood supply has ability to heal. And if a tissue has no blood supply, it's generally not going to heal. So, you know, we want to make a judgment or at least have some idea about does the tissue that's injured, whether it be skin or muscle or meniscus cartilage, have a blood supply? Uh, and so if it does, then we say, yeah, this is one we'll, we think can let it heal. Uh, probably the, the other way of framing this question, is it something that we let heal on its own? Is it something we have to surgically assist it to heal by putting stitches in or doing something? Or is it something we just have to remove because it's causing problems, it has no ability to heal, and it's causing problems. And so uh, that we sort of, again, break down uh, most common in injuries, younger patients. Uh, if it won't heal on its own, uh, and we're pretty sure it's a meniscus tear, then usually we've got to do something to help it heal. And usually that means we're going to stimulate the healing or do something to add blood supply or put stitches in it. Whereas, again, most older patients, if you look at over the age of 35, 40, uh, more often than not, well, something's not really healing and it's getting stuck and floating around in there and we just got to go take it out. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the things that maybe it's helpful for patients, um, if they get to that point where I think, oh, you know, this is not healing on its own and I and the doctor is going to recommend some sort of surgery procedure, um, is the doctor going to remove tissue or are they, they going to repair tissue? So mm-hmm. 99 patients out of 100 that come see me for a second opinion after surgery said, oh, the doctor did a meniscus repair. And, uh, and but, well, they put stitches in or I don't know, he repaired it. Did he take something out? Uh, I don't know, he repaired it. And that's those are important qualities you understand because we look at a thing that if we're going to repair something, are we going to try to make it normal? And so we, can we get that meniscus back to normal function so a young Jeremy can go continue to train for a marathon and he's got a hundred percent normal shock absorber in his knee that after a period of time, he can do anything he wants. Or no, we had to remove 80 or 90% of my meniscus. So I lost 90% of my shock absorber. And if I'm a long distance runner, odds are 70% that if you have a significant portion of the meniscus removed, that you may not be able to run again or, or not run for fitness in that you may lose that ability uh, to some degree. So I, I, that, those are the two questions you want patients to understand. Is this something that we're trying to fix and make normal? Or no, we just get it out of there because that shock absorber broke off the motor mount and it's banging into the tire and the wheel well in the car and it's doing more damage. We better get rid of it. 
and the recoveries on those are very different, right? The, the person yeah. would remember their recovery. Yeah, I kind of, again, I'm obviously I grew up in Detroit and I'm a Michigan boy. So everything's a car analogy. <laughs> and so this is like going to Jiffy Lube and I'm getting an oil change and a grease job. And we're getting all those metal filings out of the oil pan and putting a new filter in you. Or our listen, oh, we've got to, we've got, we got to put new tires on your car and we've got to rebuild the front shock absorbers and stabilizers. It's going to take us a lot longer. It's going to be more expensive and it's going to be a longer, much longer rehab because mm-hmm. we're trying to get tissue to heal mm-hmm. as opposed to just removing it. So, you know, I got my knee scoped and, you know, you could probably go back to work in a, in a light job, like being a physician, it's not that tough. Uh, after a day or two, whereas if I actually put a bunch of stitches into your meniscus, you're going to say, I'm pretty sore and I really can't run or play my sports for eight, 12, sometimes 16 weeks. Mm-hmm. So the distinction of repair versus removal or cleanup scope can be pretty dramatic. Yeah. I often quote, and this may have been a study that's, uh, you know, I, hopefully has not been disproven in any way, but I think holds, <laughs> holds water and I'll let Chuck and Jeremy uh, be counterpoint. But I often, but I mean, Chuck, as a, as a, you called yourself old, I will not call you that, but as a seasoned, especially a seasoned orthopedic surgeon who's done thousands and thousands and thousands of knee scopes. And I'm assuming also did a lot of open knee surgeries at some point or, you know, where you were, you know, beginning your, um, your career sort of at the advent of knee arthroscopy. Is that not incorrect? Um, yeah, it, it was going for a couple of years for me. I'm, I'm not in my nineties. Okay. So, no, no, I shut I, up. I didn't mean that. <laughs> my point is, is that it was like a newish thing as you were coming on board. And, and so I felt, I feel Keep like digging, a lot of, Julie. Keep digging. <laughs> so, geez, I don't know what to do. I'm turning red here. No, uh, here's my point. <clears throat> uh, I often tell people, especially my folks over the age of, me, <laughs> so people in their 40s and 50s, that I feel like we did a lot of knee scopes, you know, in the 90s, uh, the 80s and 90s and 2000s, because it was kind of the new fun thing. And it was um, a, a much, you know, technically in the beginning, maybe difficult, but easier way to get into someone's knee. You just stick a camera and, and three little scope holes that are no bigger than a centimeter using tools no bigger than a pen to look around and poke around and, and see what you're doing. So and that's why the recovery is better than having a big whack where you, you know, have to have a zipper that you open up your knee and go inside of it. And so I think a lot of orthopedic surgeons and the way I explain it to patients probably got real excited about that and the opportunity to go in there and clean things out. But for, you know, many people over the age of 40 or 50 or and those, that age group, maybe half of those people didn't even do much better after that scope or, or had not great indications for having that knee scope that then turned into or maybe worsening arthritis or post-traumatic arthritis, or it turned into more degenerative changes. So what are your thoughts? No, Julie, I, th- I think you've really summarized the, the history and evolution of, quote, a new technology. You know, when you, when you, we always use the term that when you have a new tool, you get these early adopters that just want to use it like crazy. And you, so you see the incidents go through the roof. And so uh, when you're, when you know how to do it, when you're an orthopedic surgeon and you know how to do arthroscopy, you've got this wonderful hammer in your hand, you see a lot of nails and boy, you want to go pound all those nails. And so unfortunately, yes, there was a grand, a significant period of overutilization of arthroscopy. And so you saw articles in the New York times and the uh, wall street journal and uh, in business week magazine saying the most overutilized a um, uh, non-efficacious procedure, which means that, mm. yes, there was a, way too many people who got arthroscopy. And, and I would say this is where medicine has never been better and data has never been better and big data has helped us. And mm-hmm. so, yes, we've dramatically refined the benefits of patients who would need arthroscopy in those where it's no benefit at all and potentially harmful. Because mm-hmm. as you say, like if you're doing way too many breast biopsies, you're having patients suffering way too many complications for something that they probably never needed. And the same thing was happening with arthroscopy. So, you know, there's certain parameters. If you, uh, and I, not to sort of get sidelines, I don't want anybody uh, sending you uh, cat calls, but, you know, I sit on the board of uh, Anthem, which is one of the largest Blue Cross health insurers. And we help write the guidelines for patients for care uh, for like six, for 64 million people that, that sort of use these types of guidelines. And, mm-hmm. and so if a patient's got significant arthritic wear 
on their x-rays and they've got a painful swollen knee, the likelihood that an arthroscopy is going to help that patient is very small, yeah. very small. And so that's not beneficial to that patient. You're in, in the, you know, they have an MRI that says, oh, I've got a meniscus there, but yes, you've got no cartilage left and you got bone spurs rubbing in each other. And, and in those situations where the meniscus is say number eight or nine on those 10 diagnoses of the MRI, those are the patients where they get a surgery. They're very frustrated because they feel they're worse. Yeah. Um, but I, I would tell you this, that I think in the last 10 years, our training has gotten much better. The indications have gotten much better. And so I think, again, a patient, if they're considering surgery, they want their provider to say, all right, doctor, what's the odds that this treatment's going to help me? And in most things in orthopedics, we like to be 90-10. Uh, we'll put up with 80-20, uh, but if, if it's a 50-50, oh, 50% I could help you, 50% I'm not going to help you, uh, yeah, you might as well just, you're spitting in the wind. I mean, um, so it, it, I, I think that, Julie, you're right, and so that's where consumerism comes to play. Uh, again, you have to say, what's the likelihood this is going to help me? How long is this going to take me for to recover? What is the likelihood I'm going to need more treatment down the road. And what would that treatment be if this doesn't work? So that's all part of the education process. And, and when patients do have the car wash or Jeffrey Lube thought to it, uh, many times are very disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. I, you've hit on some amazing points, uh, yeah. Chuck. Um, I want to summarize a few of them and then I want to ask you one more question. Um, I, I think just to summarize for people, we talked about the, the, anatomy of where the meniscus is. It, it provides the shock absorption for your knee. It can certainly get kind of uh, wear and tear in as, a, as it gets older. We treat tears differently based on acute or whether it, uh, you know, has been there a long time or you kind of injured it yesterday. The, the the treatment a lot of times doesn't have to happen in the first 24 hours. And, you know, it's a situation where you can kind of give it some time and, and see a physician at that point. You don't necessarily need an MRI yesterday, uh, may not need an MRI at all, depending on what it looks like. And then, um, you know, when it came to, to treatment, I think uh, the biggest take home message there was that, you know, surgery isn't maybe necessarily always first line. And there's certainly some indications for it first line, such as you mentioned the mechanical, or I can't fully do my squat, or I can't get past 90 degrees, or I'm young and had the acute injury. But a lot of times surgery is still indicated if people aren't getting better, it's a lot kind of more of a last line or down down the pathway. So did I summarize that pretty well, Chuck, anything you'd edit there? Yeah, I, I think, uh, again, I, I go back to my blocks again, the four blocks, young, old, acute, or gradual onset. The, mm -hmm. the young, acute, more likely is going to be something structural, mechanical, more likely to require more aggressive treatment if they've got, quote, these parameters of significant swelling, loss of range of motion, or mechanical symptoms. And certainly the old pa older patient, and certainly my age group will say, um, that, you know, more often gra chronic in onset or gradual in onset, those patients, majority of time, surgery is indicated much to a lesser, lesser degree. And I would say the vast majority of those patients are treated non-operatively. So now they, let's go to the other two blocks. The young patient with gradual onset of symptoms, many of those patients say, oh, I've got a meniscus tear. No, usually you don't, unfortunately. And those are the patients, yeah, you know, I've been training for a marathon. I've got pain on the outside of my knee, it's killing me. More likely than not, odds are 60% you've got IT band syndrome because you overtrain. Mm -hmm. uh, or so we say that in young patients, gradual onset of symptoms is very rarely a meniscus tear. Mm -hmm. And more likely than not, an overuse or muscle imbalance injury that usually we treat with rehabilitation, exercise mm -hmm. modifications, some medications or different strategies. Yeah. That's a great I, distinction. I really don't want to open Pandora's box here for a full uh, deep dive into this Pandora's box question. Please reference episode one of this podcast, but it is coming up a lot in the office uh, with these injuries. So I feel like we should at least see how you are answering this question, Chuck. Mm -hmm. People want to know about things like stem cells and plasma and all this stuff. I have a meniscus tear. Should I get that? Is it going to heal my problem? That kind of thing. You know, um, I would say that 30 years ago, we said the same thing about arthroscopy. Uh, and, uh, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago, we said that all chemotherapy was 
uh, cis platinum and your hair is going to fall out, your eyes are going to fall out and you're dead. So things dramatically change. And, and yes, we've got fabulous tools that we do, you know, minimally invasive treatments on. We, you know, almost 40% of patients who have their hip or knee replaced is now done as an outpatient where they used to be in the hospital for seven to 10 days. And so instead of horribly destructive chemotherapy, we can use more targeted immunotherapies that are much less morbid and actually much more effective. Mm-hmm. We're heading there slowly with uh, in orthopedic problems. Uh, we're still in the infancy, though. And so uh, we're, we're still shotgunning people with stem cells, which is cells we take from your bone marrow or from your fat. We sort of spin them down uh, or what we say PRP, where we take take a bunch of your blood and kind of spin it down and try to get, say, that what we call critical growth factors. Mm-hmm. And we're, some area, we're finding some areas where we think it really helps. And we know there's a lot of areas, well, well, we don't know it helps. It's probably not too harm. It's not too harmful other than the expense. So let's just give it a shot. Um, but I, when you go to the evidence, the evidence is still very weak. And so if you look at, say, Medicare or CMS, as we call it, uh, or you look at Blue Cross or Aetna or Cigna, there's a reason that they won't pay for any of these treatments. And it's not because they're expensive or they're cheap. It's just the evidence is still pretty weak. And so we're in this evidence gaining phase, this five to 10 years where we're gaining evidence where we see, yeah, maybe this does work with this certain indication and certain application where it's well-defined. Unfortunately, when you're in this phase, we're still in the patent medicine phase of life where, you know, you have people riding down the street with a horse and a wagon that's got all these pretty paintings and and the guy's got a big bottle of uh, shaky stuff that's probably 90% alcohol. And so you take it. That's why you, that's why you feel better. So um, we're getting there, Jeremy. I, I think that yeah. the wrong answer yeah. is to say, oh, this is all horse shit. I, I'm sorry. Um, oh, you can say shit. We yeah. love it. Okay. Explicit this, language. This is, is not all horse shit. Um, and, and unfortunately, in many situations, uh, there is a lot of, uh, unfortunately, um, inappropriate incentive for these treatments. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we see, I, 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 I'll tell the story. I, I, I saw a patient that had $35,000 worth oh. of injections Woof. for a condition that clearly warranted surgery. And this was a patient who exhausted part of their life savings because their annual income was $45,000. And, and I honestly felt it was criminal what had happened to that patient. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were other times when you know, certain treatments that we all try, patients are exhausted. Listen, you know, we've tried conventional, simple treatments. Do you want to take a shot at this? You know, we're gaining evidence. Uh, we're, you know, it's certainly not approved or ca- covered by insurance carrier yet, but there are certain indications where it's beneficial. And yeah, there, there's times where I, I believe it's appropriate. Yeah. Now the downside is, and this is where lay media comes into play. Uh, we overuse it on our professional and college athletes, yeah. without a doubt. And, and unfortunately, sure. that translates into social media that it must be magic. And so I'll give the secret of, uh, of a professional team doctor for 20 years is there's, um, sometimes we do things for activity more than effect. Yeah. And, um, and unfortunately, in professional sports, there's a lot of things we do for activity. Um, where we just pay, the player needs to feel that we're doing something, the agent needs to feel the reporters, a general manager. So we'll try treatments that, you know, that hopefully are not harmful, but we're really not sure whether they're effective because we'll do anything and everything. And often in those patient groups, certainly at a major professional level, like all the three of us take care of professional athletes, money's no object. You know, when you've got a, pay, a player who's making 12 or 15 or $18 million a year to give them a 800 or a $1,000 injection is not even, that's tip tip money for the parking guy. Uh, so, uh, you know, where's, where for somebody who's got a, you know, a job, they're a teacher, they've got a life and they've got expenses and a mortgage and children uh, to feed, you know, to say, oh, yeah, let's try something for three or five or 10 grand just as a whim yeah. um, without real solid efficacy uh, is, I, I hate to say it, very unfortunate, but unfortunately, very, very common these days. I love that you brought up um, that 
we're at this evidence gaining time when it comes to like orthobiologics and stuff. And, and just, just to let you know, our first episode, our guest was Jorge Chala. So what, what better guy to talk about stem cells and someone who loves, who loves uh, doing research than Jorge. So kept it in the family, Chuck. Well, I, I, you know, we need people like Jorge and and a lot of other outstanding physicians who are willing to, to, they're the first guys on the beach. You know, there's fire coming in. Uh, from the soldiers up in the up in the bunkers, somebody's got to be on the on the beachhead, willing to take the hits and find out where success and failure lies, yeah. and do it in an efficacious way, as opposed to a financial way. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I, quality people like Jorge, uh, I depend on. And every time I listen to him talk, I learn something. And I, and so I, I love to hear people like him speak. I think people are going to be begging for Chuck to come back on this show. I know. I know. I, know I am. <laughs> uh, let's wrap up, Julie. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, so as I, first of all, I, th- I thought your summary was fantastic, especially with a little addendum from Chuck. Um, so I'm not going to add anything to that. But uh, of course, our uh, our call to action is if you, hey, if you've ever had a meniscus tear, are you worried you had a meniscus tear or your friend had a meniscus tear? Are you worried about your meniscus at all? Please pass this on to a friend. Tell a friend about our, our podcast and uh, and share them. Text them the link. Uh, we would love it. It really helps us out um, when when you guys help spread the word. Uh, you know that word of mouth is really important, and uh, it helps us grow and reach more people and try to give non bullshit information, especially the non bullshit that we've we learned from Chuck Bush Joseph and and Jeremy. I I think I came up with a Please. with a end one, <laughs> and I'm gonna quote Chuck here. So, can you squat? If not, it might be a meniscus tear. (laughs) Listen to Chuck and listen to your doctor friends. The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.